Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. I'm delighted to have you back for another episode, to have you listening in uh, to my chat with yet another expert in terrorism, political violence and violent extremism. Before I introduce today's guest though, be sure to check out our website uel.ac.uk slash terc for all up-to-date information on all the research we do here, our book series with IB Taurus and all upcoming guests on the podcast as well. Also follow us on Twitter at terc-uel and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. Okay, time for today's guest. It's my great pleasure uh, to welcome on the pod uh, Dr. Jeffrey Stevenson Muir. I first met Jeffrey back during my PhD in St. Andrews, and uh, while he wasn't part of my supervisory team, I owe him a debt of gratitude to helping me through a couple of of uh, methodological and ethical issues that I needed to. So this, I just brought you on the pod to thank you for that, Jeffrey. <laughs> it was my pleasure. <laughs> so Jeffrey, uh, in his research, explores the problems of group violence, intercommunal conflict and political terrorism through the lens of collective identity formation. Presently, he is senior lecturer on collective violence in the School of International Relations and a research fellow to the Handa Center for the Study of Terrorism and Political Violence, both at the University of St. Andrews. In 2006, he edited with Professor Derek Reverend, uh, with Derek Reverend Flashpoints in the War on Terror and has published in numerous journals, including Terrorism and Political Violence, Journal for Terrorism Research and the International Journal of Politics, Culture and Society. His forthcoming book, Repeating Hate, published by Palgrave in 2018, explores far-right political extremism and violence in Central Europe. And with Dr. Claire Bealdy, he is the co-editor of a forthcoming volume, Perpetrating Cells, Performing Identity, Doing Violence, also published by Palgrave in 2018. As well as all this, he is also... Um, uh, he's part of the Scottish Institute for Policing Research. He's a lecturer there. And in 2017, he became a fellow of the Royal Society for Arts. So you're keeping busy, Jeff. I'm, I'm a little bit busy, yes. <laughs> Welcome to the pod and thanks thank, for joining us. Thank you, John, for, for having me. It's my pleasure. So how did you first get, become involved in this area of research? Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I think I first became involved when actually I was a volunteer for the first political election, for the first free multi-party election in Hungary um, after the collapse of communism back in 1990. And while I was there in Budapest, I saw things that I had not seen previously when I was an uh, undergraduate student in Hungary um, in the 1980s. And that was far-right, neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic graffiti all over the city. And that actually became the basis of my doctoral dissertation to explore where did this uh, kind of hatred come from, seemingly out of nowhere to, to me, um, particularly because it was so pervasive. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation, it was also when the Bosnian Wars were going on. And likewise, hearing these stories coming out of Bosnia, we lived together and then we became enemies. Um, or as uh, one respondent had, had told a, a friend of mine, another researcher, that we were defined by the people that came to kill us, that we didn't think of ourselves as one thing or the other, but 
those warring factions, those militia that came through a village would segregate people and divide them into those that were worthy of protection and those that weren't, those that were worthy of life and those that weren't. And it fascinated me. How did this come so quickly? And what seemed like it came out of, out of nowhere? This research then went on uh, and I finished uh, my, my doctoral dissertation in 1999 and you know, got my first job and uh, was you know, writing about these things in Central and Eastern Europe and then 9-11 came. Mm -hmm. And for me, what was that connection? What was the connection between the kind of violence that was being done in the name of certain political movements? How was it similar or different from the violence that was being done in the name of an ethnic group in Bosnia or in the name of true Hungarians in, in Budapest or in Hungary? And moreover, just to say, I grew up in a rather violent place. So I'm actually from um, a working class kind of industrial suburb outside of Chicago. I'm from Joliet, Illinois. Um, and growing up, um, there was a lot of gang activity, uh, largely because Joliet is a prison town. There are five prisons in Joliet. Um, and it was actually seen as kind of an open city. There were territories that were gang territories, but largely all gangs had to be able to pass through Joliet to be able to go to the prison, to be able to visit prisoners. Um, and that created a very interesting dynamic about what was permissible violence and what was not permissible violence uh, in the town of Joliet itself. And just you know, seeing young high school friends of mine who were carrying weapons, who were afraid of carrying weapons, who were afraid to be shot, who actually were involved in altercations, um, some of whom were shot themselves, um, I think that kind of growing up background then joined with what I had seen in Budapest and then what I had studied elsewhere in Bosnia and Chechnya and elsewhere um, kind of brought me to where I am today in my scholarship. Um, how, did you, how did you get from Illinois to, um, to Hungary? Not physically, well, what airport did you go to? <laughs> yeah. But what was it... Uh, throughout your career, throughout your life, that brought you to make that quite dramatic move, mm. actually, uh, for, for someone at that stage. Well, and, and maybe this is, especially for students listening, I mean, this is, can be about the accident of, of scholarship. I mean, to be honest, uh, I went to Budapest in 1987 as an exchange student uh, because the, the University of Wisconsin, where I did my first degree, uh, didn't have a program in Spanish language that I wanted to go on. Now, of course, uh, the irony there is that the Spanish language program was in Madrid, uh, it just shows my level of ignorance that would have been only six years after the restoration of democracy in Spain, after the collapse of the Francoist regime. I'm sure being in Madrid at that time would have been absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Um, for me, as a kind of ignorant, um, perhaps self-possessed young undergraduate, I wanted to go somewhere really challenging. And the University of Wisconsin had a program in, in Hungary, one of the first exchange programs uh, you know, to the communist country. And so I went. And then the changes came, and many of the professors I had stood for election, mm -hmm. and I wanted to be part of that. So I went back and volunteered uh, for one of the political parties that most of my professors were on. And it was there that I saw the, these expressions of anti-Semitism, these expressions of anti-Roma, mm -hmm. um, and I think most importantly, direct expressions of what we would recognize as neo-Nazism, Nazi salutes, references to the Holocaust, to the necessity to eliminate Roma and Jews, that 
seemed a completely antithetical to to the principles of communism mm. and b i hadn't encountered uh, those in 1987. So returning in 1990, again, just as a kind of accident, because my professors were standing for election, that in a way created the trajectory for the rest of my career. Oh, it's, it's amazing. And around that time as well, as your career was developing, as with all of us, there are key influential readings and key piece of research that can really direct your way of thinking. For you, what, what were these pieces? Well, I, th I think most importantly, the, these pieces, and, and we can enumerate them in a second, but more generally, these pieces that looked at how do we form collective bonds? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we know what group we belong to? And I think much of political science or social science in general takes it as a given that we, we are members of a group and we belong to that group for a, a series of reasons. But they're largely accidents of birth or accidents of geography. So how does it become something that uh, is passionate, is something that people are willing to die for? And so one book in particular, uh, Vomik Volkan's The Need to Have Enemies and Allies, a book that I read uh, in graduate school, uh, that was introduced by my supervisor, Dr. Um, Professor Isaac Balvis. Uh, I went on to become a mentee of, of Vomik, of, of, of Professor Volkan's. And part of what I liked about what Volkan has to say is, first, we need both enemies and allies. Mm -hmm. um, that as a knee-jerk response, feeling strongly about our group often includes feeling strongly about an anti-group, if you will. Um, now, sometimes this gets boiled uh, very reductionistically, that sometimes in social psychology and social identity theory, we talk about in-groups and out-groups as if they're very static. One group has its, its antipode. And Volkan says, no, this is a process. It's a dynamic process by which even the groups that we think that we belong to, that we act like we belong to, that is, that we make them, they may have an antipode, but that antipode changes. That these tensions about what groups are, say, allied with one another and what groups may be, uh, have antipathy with one another, that these change over time and that they do something. That relationship does something. Now, for me, the introduction from Volkan was to think about these things psychodynamically or psychoanalytically, to be more precise. He's a psychoanalyst. Um, he had been the director of the um, Center for Mind and Human Interaction at the University of Virginia for a very, very long time. He was likewise very interested in conflict. So how do we understand, say, a conflict like Bosnia, where in, say, 1988, people get along very well. People identify themselves as Yugoslav. Don't even, you know, not a large group, but about 10% of the total population don't even see themselves as being one ethnic group or another, but see themselves as being Yugoslavs. And then suddenly by 1991, things are fracturing. By 92, people are shooting at each other. By 93, in Bosnia, we have a full fledged war. And in Croatia, we're already you know, a year deep into the, the war in, in the Eastern Ukraine. And then it dissipates. And I think that's what I like about this perspective, is that the danger is conflict can come. Mm -hmm. The thing that we as, as students and as analysts is to see what are the escape routes so that conflict can go. Mm -hmm. And what troubled me in particular when I was a graduate student and what motivated me was the discourse 
and it continues today, the discourse that's largely a media discourse that says, oh, well, Bosnia, or, you know, Serbs and Croats have fought forever. Bosniaks never get along. Uh, Chechens and Russians have always been at war. Well, to me, that's completely unsatisfactory. Why are they at war now, today? And if they weren't at war 10 years ago, why weren't they at war then? Because it suggests that then peace can be. Maybe not necessarily what John Galton saw as positive peace, mm -hmm. but even negative peace is, is desirable over conflict. And then what does it take to build the kinds of social institutions, inclusive social institutions, that then make it possible for a more positive peace? And it, it also, if you've got that way of thinking that these two groups, whatever the groups are, have always been at war, have always been in conflict, it also really shapes the way a post-conflict society is because if you say that they're always in competition and in a post-conflict setup, if you keep them in competition, you're ke keeping them divided rather than bringing them back. Absolutely, John. I mean, if we go back to Bosnia again, and I've written about this in, in another piece called Institutionalizing Enemies, looking at the constitution that came out of the Dayton Peace Accords, that constitution basically freezes the conflict because... The, the organization of, of the entire government, but particularly just say, for example, the collective presidency, whereby the presidency is supposed to be representative of the three constitutive people of Bosnia, Croats, Serbs, and Bosniaks, which is a problematic term, but meaning Muslims. Mm -hmm. But there aren't just three constitutive people of Bosnia. You know, there are Hungarians, there are Ukrainians, there are Greeks, there are Macedonians, there are Jews, and there are Roma, how did they fit into those three constitutive peoples? And in fact, there was a lawsuit uh, that was filed with the European Court of Human Rights back in 2009 by uh, the, the Jewish ambassador to, of, of Bosnia to Switzerland and by a Roma activist, both of whom wanted to stand for elected office and couldn't run according to the Bosnian court because they were neither Bosniak, Serb, or Croat. So the Constitution basically makes it necessary that there are only ethnically-based political parties. And the only way to stand for election is uh, in one of these ethnically-bound political stances, which actually then requires someone to be more Croat than the next person, that we actually get then an intensification of ethnic identity, precisely what was the cause or precisely what was say, emblematic of the conflict, being perpetuated by the post-conflict solution. So th there aren't available alternate political identities. And because you can't run as a green or a feminist or a socialist or even a fascist, you have to run as an ethnic identity. It means that those politics get repeated over and over again, rather than some type of realignment of political factions, whereby, say, Serbian, Croat, and Bosniak feminists join together in a feminist party, or Greens in a Green party, or that you could have local identities that may have local concerns, but they don't have to be expressed in an ethnic way. They could be expressed you know, as, as a local political consideration. So this assumption, particularly that Bill Clinton had, largely because of who were his advisors telling him, this is the story, they've always hated each other, mm -hmm. 
the peace accord cemented that conflict. And we can imagine the same problem happening in, in Iraq, which is actually what I was writing about in Institutionalizing Enemies, saying this is a real problem. And we see this now as the Kurds are, are trying to entertain an idea of independence. What does it mean to be Kurdish? What does it mean to be Sunni? What does it mean to be Shia in Iraq? And then on top of it, what does it mean to be Turkmen? What does it mean to be Azari? All, you know, all these other identities. So we may talk about dominant ones, but there are all these minority identities that are also at risk. And imagine, of course, this same problem playing out in a post-conflict Syria. Um, so I, I think this idea of political identities as being fluid is something that each of us can imagine individually, and to do this up at a, at a larger collective level, I think is actually quite important. That's where we obtain our individual political identities from the groups that we want to belong to, but those groups also change over time. Yeah, and this, this discussion, this critical analysis, based a lot in uh, psychoanalysis and in other disciplines as well, has in relation to who we identify with, who are, how our enemies are formed, whether they're inform, uh, formed pre or post or uh, pre or during conflict, uh, that's come to to dominate uh, your your writing uh, or at least part of your research yes. in writing. And you also see your research uh, influenced by um, Julia Kristeva in her with her writing uh, "Strangers to Ourselves." What was it? Could you give the listeners an idea of? of this piece, what this really gave to you, how, what understand? Yes, I, I think, Kristeva, for me, you know, and, and perhaps for yourself as well, when we do research in these kind of areas, uh, violence, killing, uh, what can be very, very difficult emotional work, very, very difficult stories to read, um, I'm actually an optimist. You know, I, if, if anything, I may even say I'm, I'm a revolutionary. I want political change. I, I can imagine political change for a much more harmonious society, uh, for a society of cooperation, for a society that betters uh, the life of, of everyone. Yeah. So how do we get there? And I think it's, it's Christopher that really touched me. That book in particular suggests it's not about trying to see the self in the other, that in psychoanalytic terms for Christopher, that's actually an act of narcissism. You're just seeing yourself. So to try to figure out how the other is like you is actually just to be attentive only to yourself. Mm. That book, Strangers to Ourselves, is an exploration of how might we think of empathy as the mechanism by which we can discover how I am like the other. Mm. And reversing that lens to try to explore not how is the other like me, but how I can identify with the other. Mm. To think about in parallel, and this isn't Kristeva's project, but I think it's very, very closely allied, her book, to the work of uh, Emmanuel Levinas, uh, talking about hospitality, whereby if we think of what the other needs, not what I like, not the reproduction of what makes me feel comfortable, but to try to anticipate what might make the other feel more comfortable becomes a way for us to have to imagine the other's discomfort. Mm -hmm. How can we alleviate that pain? How can we ameliorate the discomfort of the other? It requires us to not think about our own subject position, but to imagine, to empathize, 
and perhaps most importantly then, to listen to the other, to let the other tell us what is her pain, what is her discomfort. And in that move, we may then be able to work much more closely together. We might change our own perspective um, and be able to see something new through the eyes of the other. And so Kristeva really entreats us to do this very, very hard work. How do we come to the point where we can see the other? And it requires us then to have to think about how might we make other people feel uncomfortable? Uh, how do we justify our own violence? Uh, for us to think about what pain do we cause others? And politically speaking, that's a very big ask, if you mm. will, to, to ask a political culture, what harm do you do others? Most political cultures want to believe right, that they're good, yeah. uh, that they act in the name of peace, that they act in the name of humanity or civilization or whatever is the larger goal, a loftier goal. And to have to hear the criticism that perhaps know that there are people that are hurt by projects of civilization, projects of colonialism, projects, all kinds of projects, mm -hmm. um, to think, especially, and I, I was just writing a, a book, or a book. <laughs> I was just writing a chapter for a new book with Derek, uh, writing a, a chapter about political violence. And uh, a lot of that chapter focuses on Walter Benjamin's uh, critique of violence, his kind of very famous 1921 essay. And in that essay, Benjamin describes how almost all states are either involved in lawmaking or law-preserving mm. violence, and that violence is, is somehow at the center of the state. Now, that may be a different conversation that we can come to, mm. but I think what's important is to see even law preservation mm. might be done with extreme violence, mm. and to hear the critique that that violence causes harm you know, a lot of times, the police, the military, the state, they don't want to hear it. They mm -hmm. think that they're doing good. Yeah. Uh, Christopher suggests we need to be attentive to these critiques. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the critique is wholly correct, but rather, what does it mean to be attentive so that we can have a different kind of conversation, which is completely different from, oh, no, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not violent. Yeah, and I suppose to... To sum it up, it's it's not about laying blame. It's about taking responsibility. Yes, that's, I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very well put. And I think that's the challenge, right? Is that taking responsibility for one's own say, insight, one's own analysis, what the uh, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu calls reflexivity. That is to be constantly aware of both the interior and the exterior, to be conscious of oneself and to be conscious of the way that I am in the world. We can do that both at an individual level and we can also do that at a collective level. And doing that is just as you say, it's taking responsibility for my actions. Mm -hmm. And it isn't about blame and critique here, especially the way that Benjamin uses it, is in the German sense, it's an unfolding, right? It's about trying to open something up and look inside of that thing. It's not critique as a smackdown or as mm. a smashdown. Rather, it's about uh, an attempt to, to gain insight into the interior, what Kant calls an imminent critique, to critique something on its own terms, inside of itself. Mm. And I think if we 
whether as individuals about our own mm. lives, our everyday lives, or we as political actors, or we as part of a political community, do that, explore why we engage in certain acts, particularly for the purposes of our conversation, violent acts, mm -hmm. we may find that those are very well justifiable acts, mm -hmm. right? I mean, and, and that maybe they are acts for good. And we may also see something that was done in the name of the good actually may have deleterious effects, or it could be that in the name of the good, it actually was, mm -hmm. say, a, a, an act that causes tremendous pain. So a lot of this research that was having an influence on you is housed within psychoanalysis. What kind of reaction have you gotten uh, in, the, in our area by putting forward these psychoanalytic theories, this psychoanalytic research of saying, we should be listening to this? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think initially uh, the reaction was quite cold. Um, and I think largely that is because much of terrorism research, particularly in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks, so in the early 2000s, was done largely by political scientists. And political science, particularly North American political science, is largely grounded in a presumption of rationality, if not directly saying you know, they were rational actors making rational choices and using rational choice modeling, uh, in which violent action can still take place. Uh, and the counter to rationality for many of those social scientists is irrationality, mm -hmm. which also became a discussion, particularly in the early 2000s, that, you know, oh, they're crazy people or they're mentally ill. Or, and, and there are plenty of people who have attempted to commit violent attacks, particularly bombings, uh, who may have psychological problems, and maybe we end up talking about them a little bit mm. in this conversation. But both of those approaches just were not compelling to me. Mm. Moreover, because of this kind of conversation about the role of violence, whether it's from John Locke or from Benjamin, the idea that the state commits violence uh, or the state is allowed to commit violence as the very basis of civilization. I mean, in some regard, this is Norbert Elias's uh, famous book called The Violence of Civilization, right? That, that making these trade-offs of being inside of society, uh, that you can't just do anything you want, uh, there's a restraint there. And that restraint sometimes is uh, what Benjamin called the presumption of violence. In that sense, it's not unto itself a bad, right? It's something that exists within society. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, violence has always been around, we need to accept it. No, quite the contrary. But what I found unappealing in the early 2000s was either the terrorists are completely rational or they're completely irrational. And to me, there had to be something in between. And further, that perhaps in an extraordinarily repressive regime, one might find the justification for violence. So, of course, when I was growing up, I mean, part of this conversation was about does the ANC, the African National Congress, does it have recourse to use violence against the apartheid regime? And this was a conversation, you know, that I would have with roommates and, uh, you know, across a beer as an undergraduate student over and over again. But that was the environment in which I grew up, meaning that there might be a justification for violence. Now, I am 
in no way trying to be an apologist for terrorists. But the question for me as an academic was, what happens if we do what Kristeva was asking us to do, to try to listen to the communication in violence mm -hmm. from these different groups? What are they trying to say? Some of them have nothing to say. If we think about Om Shurikyo and these kind of uh, apocalyptic millennial terrorists, maybe they have really nothing interesting to say. Mm -hmm. Others that still get painted with a broad brush of terrorists might be national liberation movement people. They might be indigenous peoples, um, say, in, the, in South America who feel that they're being oppressed by the state. We can talk about all kinds of different groups, mm -hmm. but I think part of this is the necessity to listen either to the groups themselves or to listen to the violence. Mm. We can read the violence as a text mm. that has a lot to say. Yeah, and I think this is a theme that's, that's coming across a lot of the interviews here is we need to have an appreciation for nuance. We need to have an appreciation for complexity that the answers to the questions that we ask aren't always binary. It's not always yes or no. It's not always violence or non-violence. It's not always rational or irrational. We have to look at the, the complexity, the middle ground there as That's well. right. And this is what an approach like this has added for you, for your Yes, and, and I think, uh, you know, over the, the 2000s, you know, by the middle, by the middle of the first decade of the, of the 21st century, there was a growing appreciation for psychology and mm -hmm. you know trying to think about the psychology of terrorism. Um, lots of really good books, really interesting research, exploring uh, those psychological approaches. And in that sense, there, there's a broad range of psychological uh, approaches. There's you know uh, rational, sorry. There's relational identity theory. There's uh, social identity theory. There's social representational theory. And I happen to come from this psychoanalytic tradition. Um, and I'm very happy to talk with uh, people in more, quote-unquote, mainstream uh, psychology departments, social psychology from these different approaches, SIT, whatever. But I think in the end, all of these different theoretical traditions wrestle with how do we find ourselves into a group? Mm -hmm. And then, more importantly for the question of your center, how do we find ourselves in a group willing to do an extraordinary act, whether that's an extraordinary act of violence against other people, whether that's an extraordinary act of violence that may include one's own self-destruction. Mm -hmm. um, and how are people able to do that? And I think early on, you know, and now there's been a, a lot of very good research about suicide bombers, but and, and, and again, to see suicide bombing as its own technique, right? To think that a lot of the really good research on suicide bombers comes out of the research about the Tamil Tigers, yeah. about the LTTE, right? These people are not trying to be martyrs to go to heaven, right? They are Marxists and they see this as a tactic, but that they're willing to sacrifice their own bodies for that cause. I think we have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? And I think psychology gives, and sociology, uh, give us very good entrees into thinking about the social relationships that may become such that we're willing to, to die. Yeah. And in, a, in an episode a few weeks ago, uh, Paul Gill from University College London, he was saying his approach is to initially to ignore the ideology and to focus on the behavior and then build up from that, like, okay, what has led to this behavior? Because sometimes you can be blinded by that ideology. And when you look at the case of suicide bombing, and 
maybe not when you look at the Tamil Tigers, but when you look at modern at, at groups such as ISIS, Al Qaeda, and others, that when you look at it, you just think of this martyrdom, and uh, not you, but others think of it, and they use that as well. That's the reason there, and it's not really drawing on what has or the more the complexity that is brought. Absolutely. No, and I think, you know, a lot of this, when one can see this uh, in the New York Police Department kind of famous yeah. triangle of radicalization, which always presumed that the end point was becoming a terrorist. Mm. Um, and it raises the question about all of these people who may have extraordinarily, quote unquote, radical political viewpoints who don't consider violence. And, and it raises big questions when we think about de-radicalization programs, whatever that means, right? What are we going to, how are we going to transform someone in a de-radicalization program? But does it actually ask the political society not to have radical ideas? Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a very terrifying political statement because I think it's helpful to have radical feminists, radical environmentalists, environmentalists, radical gay activists, that we can think of all of these different political groups that in one moment or another were seen as outside of the political establishment, that there were radicals representing those moves who now are completely welcome inside mm. of the political establishment, or maybe more welcome, maybe completely yeah. too, too <laughs> big of an adjective there. Yeah. But, but in, in, in that sense, to think about then what is being explored rather than presuming that one thing leads to another, this causal chain? And, and, and I think Paul Gill asking that question is an important one. And I had done a, a piece of research in the 2008 to 2011, uh, the European study of youth mobilization. We used the word mobilization because we didn't want to use the word radicalization to actually ask young people who saw themselves as outside of the political establishment what they thought about politics. Now, we did this in Central Europe um, largely because it's the place I know best where I have the yeah. most resources, mm. but also largely because it was less politically loaded if we started asking people about political mm. violence. But one of the things that we found was that a lot of this has to do with people's membership within the group and that this is something I write about as well, that we can think of group membership as being both a commitment to certain practices, and those practices might include violence, mm -hmm. and likewise, that to be a member of the group is also to take on collective pain, to take on a, a history of, of pain. So we can think of the intensity of our group membership right, by our willingness to accept pain, Deprivation. Uh, so the, the easy sports analogy uh, I, I give is one can imagine, you know, uh, a sports team that, that constantly uh, wins. Well, it's easy to, to like a team that constantly wins. It's hard to like a team that constantly loses. And we can think of the fans of those kinds of teams that constantly lose as being the really hardcore fans, right? The, will, the ones that are willing to buy season tickets, even though they know that this season we're probably going to be at the bottom of the league table again. That willingness to take on pain then also means that maybe I didn't experience that pain myself. And sometimes it became troubling when you know, analysts would say, oh, well, you know, I don't understand why they, that person became a terrorist. They had a middle class background. They didn't experience any deprivation, blah, blah, blah. 
But to me, it's like that misses the point, mm -hmm. right? It, it's almost like what Paul Gill was describing, right? It's about the behavior. So my willingness to do this must be grounded in an, an emotional attachment. But if we think about the willingness to carry pain as part of the emotional attachment to the group, then perhaps my willingness to experience deprivation, even though personally in my personal life I haven't, but in my collective identification, that pain for the whole group, it's mine. And it isn't affectation, it isn't a, a show, it's real, it's a real pain. And we can imagine this in the same way that at a patriotic level, at a national political level, we are supposed to feel pain when we go to a national day of mourning or we see a national monument to the fallen. We're supposed to feel emotion and that's supposed to be very genuine emotion. Well, we can imagine the same sense of deprivation on behalf of my group because it is systematically excluded, because it's systematically uh, faced with structural violence, because of all these other kinds of things. And yeah, when you when you drew the comparison to how a nation acts uh, with their national day of mourning and so on, maybe this is the Irishman coming out in me, but like a nation's identity, a lot of the time the national history and the historical memory that a nation has is oftentimes not based on the successes, but the pains that they've, they've felt, famines, war, um, depre economic depressions, and so on. Like if you, it can bring a group, it can bring a nation together saying, we got through all that together, and we are, we're bound, bound together by this. Absolutely. Well. And one can imagine, too, you know, the kind of politics of that suffering where if there is a community that is experiencing those kind of deprivations famine mm. and people leave and then they come back what what's their status you know and that that status may may change and and if we think then about terrorist organizations or political groups that commit violence um, we can think about the the role of status mm. right and that that status might be obtained this is something I, I write a great deal about, that status might be obtained by committing violence. So let's say I, you know, there's a political community, it's experiencing uh, famine, uh, I, come a fam I come from a family with resources, we're able to leave, we emigrate, we go away, I come back, I want to have political status within the group, and people say, well, you didn't suffer this. Mm. Well, what might be one of the ways that I can obtain different status? Well, maybe it's I do a very profound act. So maybe I can obtain status in lieu of that suffering by causing suffering. Maybe I can obtain that status by doing something that other people are unwilling to do. That is, I can kill. Or at least I can demonstrate my commitment by being able to do these kind of acts to kill. And we can think about that then in, you know, even in terms of, say, a street gang. You know, to be a true member of the street gang, you can't just talk the talk or flash the signs or you know, whatever is going to be the kind of cliche, the superficial level of membership. To be a true member, you have to show the willingness of a bodily commitment. That might be to take a beating, it might be to give a beating, and it might be to be willing to commit violence against a rival. And that bodily commitment might be a way of obtaining status and we see that in in paramilitary and in terrorist groups at the beginning of involvement though they they test their young members to make sure okay you commit to this group here and this commitment will bind you to us i 
I'm thinking of the the work of my colleague Andrew Silk in relation to Irish Republicans and how young recruits were were brought in and say show your commitment by participating in this act a, a punishment beating for yes. example this will bind you to the group and it it shows that that we can trust you and it shows that you're committing yes. uh, committing to this group so when you were talking about radicalize uh, about de-radicalization programs uh, it sort of made me think back to one of our earlier episodes um with a former colleague of yours sarah marston who's now uh, formerly at saint andrews now at lancaster university in her excellent book about reintegration mm. of uh, of former terrorists into the community and in her book she talks about um how it's it shouldn't be just about the individual who's being reintegrated a lot of the emphasis should be on is the community ready for this and it's about preparing the community, not just the individual. And that actually makes me uh, think of that piece, Strangers to Ourselves. It's it's that taking responsibility. It's not laying blame uh, fully on, okay, they're the bad person coming out. They have to fit in with us. It's about the community thinking, okay, what way can we take responsibility and make sure that our society is ready for this reintegration as well. And I would have never seen the connection between your work with Sarah. Or no, I saw some <laughs> yeah, connection, sure. but I never saw it there until this discussion here. And it really, it, it really does, uh, does show the link between those, those, uh, those areas of research. Before we get onto your own research, though, I want to, to touch on the final piece that you've picked. It's a, a similar um, to Strangers to Ourselves, published in 1991. It's Race, Nation, Class, Ambiguous Identities by Balabar and Wallerstein. Well, describe this piece to our listeners. Well, this piece is an exploration of the intersection of what we now very happily or comfortably talk about intersectionality, but the intersection between these kind of large-scale identities, the way that race and nation and class all kind of fit together and how they themselves are fluid and how the presumption of what constitutes a class status in one social condition, and we might think about that geographically, but we can also think of that uh, temporal or temporarily so that class in one political society may change over time. We can also think of that in terms of race. And so something that often is seen as so fundamental, right, it's your skin pigment, is actually something that is likewise, like in class, socially discussed, determined, and changes. And the idea that race in one circumstance may not translate in another circumstance is part of what that book is trying to explore. Looking at what race and class mean in African societies in particular, which is Kind of where Wallerstein, um, even though he's well known for world system theory, I mean, his mm. own area has often been thinking about the colonial legacy uh, in Africa and how has that changed things and how has being inside of a larger world system of colonialism actually affected African politics long after the colonial powers left. How does race work in African polities both in the context of the way that race was imposed by colonial powers and the way that it operates internally inside of all kinds of different political uh, milieus. And we can think of, say, some of the problems, just as an example, this is not the book, but their book helped me think about, uh, just as an example, the problems in Mali. Mm -hmm. So when we think about Sahelian 
independence movements that largely have morphed with um, both illicit trade that happens across the Sahel and now in a context of Islamist political movements. There might be another way of just seeing that conflict as a struggle between you know, Muslim, Arab, Northern Malians against much darker uh, Christian black Malians in the South. And that this can be as much a discussion about what in, say, the transatlantic terms we might recognize as race, as it is about Islam, as it is about, and maybe most importantly here, class. Mm -hmm. That we might also see a distinction here, not just between, say, two religions, but that the North is systematically impoverished, or the perception is systematically impoverished uh, at the expense of its much wealthier southern uh, co-nationals. And we can do this kind of politics all over Africa, and we can do it elsewhere, where we see what looks like a division, say, even in the latest Kenyan uh, yeah. elections. What looks like a division that's described, quote-unquote, in tribal terms, mm -hmm. may actually be better understood in terms of, say, status networks, that what constitutes a tribe might actually be a class network of patronage you know, where people tap one another, they go to school together, they give each other the better jobs, um, and that there may be no kin in, a, in an anthropological terms, no kin network. Mm -hmm. It's a fictive one that largely anthropologists discuss, but it's a social one that gets reproduced again and again. How do we understand what might look like, in one circumstance, tribal conflict as what could be class conflict? Or does it help for us to introduce class into what looks like a religious war? Or does it help us to introduce religion in what looks like a class war? Or does it actually help us to think about place? So a friend of mine at, at Manchester uh, University has written a, a great deal about kind of this, the political fights that have happened in uh, Taj not in Tajikistan, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, largely between Kyrgyz and, uh, and Uzbeks. And Madeleine Reeves has, has really tried to point out that it's not between Kyrgyz and Uzbeks, it's between particular factions within the Kyrgyz who act in the name of all Kyrgyz. Mm -hmm. But largely, it's an attempt by rural, impoverished, kind of, dispossessed Kyrgyz to claim the name of Kyrgyzness and to make everyone else kind of fall in line behind them. And to not do so is to somehow either, and this is where things get tricky, right, either deny their ethnic identity or to deny their national identity. And where ethnic and national you know, become quite fuzzy because there have been Uzbeks inside of Kyrgyzstan for a long time, can't those Uzbeks have a Kyrgyz national identity, but having an Uzbek uh, ethnic identity? And so basically, Wallerstein and, and Balibar trouble us in this book to think about, going back to these ideas of fluidity, to think about the complexity of this fluidity. It's not just that we have ethnic identities that might change. It's that our ethnic identities or our racial identities may be influenced by our class status, and that each in turn may influence one another. And so we might think about who gets to decide who is defined into what group. 
And there, I think that that book really opened up things for me to, to see, you know, race isn't just the color of your skin. It's also about the way that sensa are conducted. It's the way that the government defines someone in a particular race. It's all kinds of political things, not biological things. And, and that is what, what Simon Clark called the kind of the fallacy of, of, of race. So this is, this really fits in with uh, the way that you have carried out your own research as well. And this is why I framed it, framed these interviews like this. I want to, to show how other people's research can really help shape an individual researcher's way of thinking. And when looking at all of these pieces, we can really see it ring through in the, in the four pieces that you've selected us for here today. But the one I want to start with is your 2009 piece, Constructing the Enemy Other, Anxiety, Trauma and Mourning in the Narratives of Political Conflict. I can see influences of all of those three pieces there. What, what was this piece about and what were you trying to achieve here with, with this? So this piece and... Uh, and my new book, uh, Repeating Hate, becomes kind of the book version of this uh, shorter article. Good, uh, good plug there. <laughs> now. You have to plug the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, brought to you by, uh, by Paul Gray. <laughs> yeah. uh, is, is an attempt to understand why people are willing to commit violence in the name of their group identity and how might we get out of it but most importantly, it's a way of trying to understand the creation of antipathy for another group without simply dismissing it as someone being racist. That the motivation for this piece was exploring all this anti-Semitic, right-wing, anti-Roma violence in, in Hungary. It was, how can I have something to say to those people, to the, to the people that are involved in that political activity? Um, how might I actually engage them in a way that, A, I can understand what they're doing, what their motivations are, and B, that perhaps I may, in my own small way, uh, be able to engage them such that perhaps we together can ameliorate uh, the conditions that seem to cause that violence. And so part of this is trying to understand these problems without simply wagging a finger and say, you're racist, stop it, stop being racist. Uh, because I don't think uh, we can understand what's motivating these political actors if we simply say, stop what you're doing, mm -hmm. what you're doing is bad. Particularly when they are acting in a way that's trying to say to the establishment, whether it's correct or not, they're saying to the establishment, we think that you are acting in a way that is bad. So. Constructing the enemy other is an exploration of how a given group comes to actually construct the enemy, not to assume that the enemy exists a priori. That is, to go back to a comment I made earlier about one of the critiques of social identity theory, which discusses in-groups and out-groups, is that it seems to be a rather static uh, theoretical proposition. It, offers a lot of richness in understanding how people come to, say, have a positive affectation, a positive connection to their in-group and demonize the out-group. But to me, that theory is insufficient or it's wanting because I want to see the dynamic process of how did we get to that place in the beginning? If we're going to question, as we spoke of earlier, that 
Serbs and Croats haven't always been at war. And in fact, from a historian's perspective, it's actually that Serbs and Croats really didn't pay much attention to each other until they were actually put into Yugoslavia in the first place uh, at the beginning of the 20th century after the First World War, because Serbs had their own issues, largely issues with the Ottoman Turks, and Croats were actually inside of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which meant that they had their own political issues, which were looking north while the Serbs were kind of looking south. They kind of looked away from each other. Mm. How did they come to construct one another as the enemy other um, is the question that I really wanted to explore here. And one of the, and this isn't always the case, I don't want to suggest I'm, I'm creating a, a generalizable uh, kind of theory that is for all cases of conflict. But in certain cases of conflict, uh, I suggest in this article that actually the group that becomes the enemy isn't a distant group. And it actually isn't a group that had always been the enemy. Quite the contrary. I suggest that in many cases, a group that is experiencing a profound social disruption in psychoanalytic terms, a trauma, and unfortunately, that word's been bantered about for like the last 20 years, and, mm. and, and it, maybe it's lost some of its power. But in this case, I mean it pretty much in, in, the, in the psychoanalytic sense of uh, an event that is so disquieting and so disruptive that it cannot be faced directly. And because of the immensity of this disruption, one mechanism to deal with this is to find a narrative that explains that disruption and to find a symbol that represents the agent for the narrative of that disruption. And by that, utilizing Julia Kristeva's term, this is actually from a different book from the, the powers of horror, but it's, it's something that comes up regularly in her work, a term called abjection, the group calves off some part of it and says, that group is responsible for all of our pain. And in doing so, the group that casts off the other part of the group, it knows that group intimately. It knows everything about it. Why? Because it actually had been part of the whole group. It had been part of, and I'll use these kind of psychoanalytic terms, it had been part of the self and it now becomes the other. But the other is also then the depository of all of the emotions that the self despises within it. Uh, vulnerability, uh, weakness, um, any type of say quality that seemed to cause this disruption can be removed. And in its removal though, it has to go somewhere. It can't just dissipate. And so in its removal, it gets placed into this vessel that is the other. Now, one of the things that this does is it helps us understand why conflicts happen in groups, A, that seem to be quite close rather than far away. I mean, we can talk about Serbs and Croats being opposed to one another, but it's important that they were in Yugoslavia together, right? Perhaps even more importantly, that they were in Bosnia together. Right? It's that the languages aren't different, that the languages are the same. Right? That the, the, what Freud calls the narcissism of minor differences becomes the dividing line between one group and another. The way I pronounce milk might be just a, a twist different uh, 
in Serbian Serbo-Croatian versus in Croatian Serbo-Croatian, right? And we used to call that one language, Serbo-Croatian, right? Similarly, you know, Czechoslovakian used to be one language, now they're two. But how we use vowels is the way to distinguish between one and the other. In a crisis, the way that that group pronounces milk or the way that that group writes the word milk using an E instead of an A, right? that that becomes the basis of distinguishing between those who are to be protected and those who are not, between those who are to live and those who are to die. And we might, or at least I argue in the piece, we might understand that that takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of effort to take apart two groups that were so close together that we have to find those insignificant little details like the way we pronounce a word or the way that we use a vowel. And in that sense, we can think of the intensity as actually being reflected in the ferocity of violence. That the closer the groups are, the more violent the conflict. So it almost turns everything we know about ethnic conflict kind of on its head. That somehow, oh, if only we could get the groups to see each other and be closer together, that would end the conflict. What I'm suggesting here is, no, in fact, what we might see in some regard is it's the proximity that is actually causing the intensity of the conflict. Now, that isn't to say then that there's no solution. And that's why the, the last words in the title of the, or the subtitle of the piece about mourning become quite important. Because from a psychoanalytic standpoint, we can see this creation of an all good self, and the creation of this all bad other that's responsible for everything bad that's happened to me. Is there a way that we can create a rapprochement? Can we reconcile the two? And in psychoanalytic terms, often a process of mourning those people who experience a profound loss, who have trouble with that profound loss, often experience it as the creation of an all good or an all bad. Now, it could work either way at the individual level. Like, uh, my mother was a saint, she was all good, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and by trying to hold on to an image of her being all, all good, it causes the disruption for me because, well, maybe my mother wasn't all good. The mourning process in object relations psychoanalysis is about finding a way to deal with ambivalence. It's about trying to merge the all good and the all bad so that we can see the good and the bad together. And going back to the Christavian, right, if we think about the self and the other as these two diametrically opposed things, then it becomes then this way of reintegrating that calved off other. How do we find the other in the self? Right? In this case, actually it's not that hard because the other had been part of the self. But again, it's not trying to find the self in the other. It's the other way around. And here we can see then a highly dynamic process by which groups split, are incredibly contentious, ferociously violent, and yet perhaps at some other point that violence can dissipate. And in the dissipation of that violence, and it may be possible to do some type of reconciliation in the language of the peace, I call this adaptive mourning, and that the two groups come together. And maybe they don't come together in the same way that they were before the conflict, but at least they can see how one another influenced each's past. Um, and one last comment on this, I realize I'm going quite long here, it's also to see that the conflict is often a conflict within one group. So part of 
traditional conflict resolution has always been to bring the two parties together to try to have them work out their differences. Uh, this isn't to say that that's not helpful. It, it's often very, very helpful. But this approach, and what I discuss in, in the article of constructing the enemy other, is understanding the disturbance inside of one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan Miller actually wrote a very good book about psych- Lacanian rather than object relations, but a psychoanalytic look at the, uh, the violence in Northern Ireland, mm-hmm. and actually talking about how each side almost has to reconcile in itself before they can reconcile across and if we understand then some of the motivation for this violence, casting out the other, the violence of casting that other out, and the violence that's required to maintaining the other out, right, to prevent them from slipping back, or what Kristeva calls the necessity for a violent uh, prohibition, that's actually about a trouble within me, right, a trouble within the self, the group self. If, if the self can work out what was problematic, then the door can be open for this kind of reconciliation. So it might not be between two parties. It might actually be the necessity of working things through, thinking things through within the group self first, and then it can approach and and hopefully have this rapprochement uh, with the other. You mentioned it there uh, briefly throughout your answer about adaptive uh, mourning, and you refer to adaptive cultural mourning. Could you go a bit more in depth about this? Practically speaking, what might this look like? Yeah, and and this is a great question. And in fact, I I just wrote a piece that will come out in the spring about this, about monuments. Um, And I think it's called cultural adaptive mourning because it it largely happens at a kind of cultural level. Mm -hmm. So we might think of, say, in an American context, we might think about the trauma that is the Vietnam War and that working through, collectively, working through the trauma of the loss of the Vietnam War. Where does it happen? Well, it might happen in, say, Maya Lin's wonderful, amazing uh, monument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was such hostility to that monument, right? There's, there, there's a whole set of other monuments that are kind of the rejection of that monument. You might actually suggest that there's a, there's a kind of battle going on between two monuments. We can think about films in the same way that there are films that are critical of the war and films that are celebratory of the war. How critics write about the reconciliation of those films, those narratives, the plot lines. How do we actually say work through that maybe the war wasn't all bad or wasn't conducted by all bad people or the soldiers that were in the ground weren't bad people? And that the protesters weren't all bad, right? How can we reconcile those that supported the war versus those that opposed the war? And we can think about this in a whole range of uh, different political contexts. Maybe most famously uh, is what's known as the historian's debate, uh, which is a discussion about collective guilt and responsibility that happened in Germany in the 1980s, but most importantly, where it happened. It happened in the editorial pages of the biggest newspapers. Mm -hmm. This was a very public, it was very intellectual, but it was a very public discussion about who was responsible for what. Are we responsible for the sins of the Nazi regime, this next generation? Are we responsible for the Holocaust? If we're not, then who is? And that, I think, became a really important a model of showing how a very public discussion that included films, that included television programs, that included monuments, uh, 
was to be able to have a discussion of how we are not all good or not all bad. I'll give you one quick, quick, quick example. Uh, Joaquin and Esther uh, Gertz uh, created this amazing monument in, in Harburg. And it's just, it's coincidental that they actually established the monument, which Harburg is a suburb of Hamburg. And they established the monument just months after the beginning of the historian's debate. And the monument was, uh, it's called the Monument uh, Against Fascism. And the idea was to invite the people of Hamburg to declare that they are going to be vigilant against uh, the return of fascism. And the artists created this very interesting 10 meter tall stainless steel uh, monolith that would sink over the next seven years, okay. asking people to sign their names onto this monument that they would stand vigilant against fascism. But it didn't quite work out that way. So people did do that and they signed their names and things like that. But people also put swastikas on. They painted Stars of David with circle around it and line through it. There was terribly anti-Semitic uh, graffiti on it. Someone actually shot it, right? There was a bullet hole in it. Um, but it became a very public discussion about what did the Holocaust and what did the Nazi regime and what does fascism mean to the neighborhood of Hamburg and Hamburg? And the presumption was that it's this kind of very lefty neighborhood and that, of course, everyone in Hamburg was going to stand up against fascism. But it turned out that, no, there are people around here that feel differently and ambivalent. And there were other kind of famously, I'm going to get the names wrong, but famously someone wrote something like, um, Jürgen loves Kirsten, okay. right? So... But for many people, and including the artists, they said, you know, actually, this is totally demonstrative of what happens under fascism. Some people don't care, mm. right? They, they, they look the other way. But what was interesting here is the whole neighborhood had a conversation about what it meant in this neighborhood. And as the monolith kind of was lowered, the conversation ended. Sure. And at that point, right, the, the whole neighborhood had been changed. And so for for the rest of time, right? Uh, for at least living memory now, and hopefully into the future, whenever people in Harburg talk about the Holocaust or talk about Nazi Germany, they'll also have to talk about what happened in the late 1980s and early 1990s and what the neighborhood was like and what happened because they had this conversation. And it transformed the neighborhood. In this case, it transformed it from its own self-image of a all good, all leftist, all anti-fascist neighborhood into something not so say, valorized, but something far more humanized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the power of this kind of mourning process. Yeah, it can reveal the true self. It can reveal the, 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 what the community is truly about. Yes. And I suppose when you talk about monuments, uh, the first thing that, uh, in the context of political violence that a lot of people will be thinking about at the moment, isn't necessarily monuments to um, fallen heroes to commemorate conflict. It's the destruction of monuments by uh, by politically violent offenders. Um, Rashmi Singh talked about it uh, in relation to India, and she referred to it in relation to um, in relation to ISIS at the moment as well. Um, how can approach like you were putting forward there in relation to um, monuments commemorating the past? 
be applied then to the restoration of monuments that were destroyed during conflict? Can, can you see parallels there? In- oh, most definitely. I mean, I, I think there's some, sometimes it would almost be the question of uh, can some things be rebuilt? And, and, and there are you know, great, powerful examples of, of things being rebuilt and, and we're all the luckier of, uh, to, to have them for them. Uh, some of it might be to leave something in ruin, you know, and to think about the power of, um, I, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a, a, a burnt out church uh, uh, in in Berlin, um, you know, right near the center of Berlin. And it was a great statement about all the destruction that was wrought on Berlin, even while it's being reconstructed, as a kind of reminder that, you know, this is what bad politics can can bring, right? So we might think about some monuments maybe are best left in ruin, and, and you and I both you know, could see the power of that every day in St. Andrews, yeah. that, that seeing the violence of the religious wars in, in, in St. Andrews, the, the violence of the Protestant Reformation, um, is right there in the stone that is in the ruin of, of St. Andrews. So there's a lot to be said about leaving things lie, literally in this case, but it's also then about how that story is is told. And uh, curiously, I was listening to an interview last night with the American filmmaker Ken Burns, um, who was asked about uh, the Confederate monuments yeah. in the United States and all the political controversy that goes with that. And he said he was very disquieted by the idea of destroying monuments. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, it's a very difficult political task to contextualize, especially a monument that's distasteful that that is problematic and so maybe some monuments they deserve to come down maybe Cecil Rhodes maybe it isn't proper to have Cecil Rhodes up at Oxford maybe it's really not proper to have Cecil Rhodes up at the University of of Cape Town in in South Africa but some monuments need to be present so that we can have a conversation about them Um, so in in Budapest in Hungary there's a monument that actually causes a lot of tension after the collapse of communism, um, the new government did something kind of clever. They swept up most of the communist era monuments and they didn't destroy them. They put them all in one place. Okay. They put them in a place called Memento Park. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of walk down a whole line of, of Lenins with their arms out pointing to the future. And, you know, it's quite funny. But they did leave one very, very important monument. intact. They left a number intact, but one very important monument intact near the parliament. And that was a, a monument to the lifting of the siege of of Budapest. And for many Hungarians, that's actually a symbol of communist occupation. But it becomes a center point to talk about, well, then why did the Red Army have to come? And why was that fighting so ferocious? And by it being in place, even as it offends, it becomes a way of having a very genuine conversation. And in a sense, if we were talking about the way that we might make mourning or or create this reconciliation, in a sense, the existence of that monument prevents the falling into an all good. Or in this case, falling into an all victim uh, position. That somehow there has to be a conversation about the responsibility of some Hungarians, not all Hungarians, but some Hungarians in the Holocaust, and in the defense of Budapest with SS German troops against the Red Army. And so it's yeah, the power of like uh, reminding us of our collective pains and the, the, 
that yeah not being able to say one side was good one side was bad being able to remember all of that it's a uh, we could have a whole podcast just about <laughs> yeah, monuments yeah. i think it's a uh, it's a road that i didn't see it going down but it's a fascinating way of looking at it but i want to move on to the next piece then it's called ethnic conflict an overview of analyzing and framing communal conflicts from comparative perspectives and i like as you can see here i've got notes all over the place on this i, I found it a really interesting really interesting article and i think a quote that you used by kofi annan within the piece really sums it up where he talks about horizontal inequality something that we would sometimes refer to as relative deprivation as well in a similar similar context similar conversation um what what was Anan talking about in relation to horizontal inequality and how does that affect ethnic conflict um, and how does that feed into the whole piece? And so multiple questions there for you to answer. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really good question. I think a very important question. So going back to what we were discussing earlier, I mean, all too often ethnic conflict is actually taken as say, the thawing uh, the unfreezing of some heretofore frozen conflict that had always existed, say, in perpetuity, that had existed since time immemorial. Um, and we discuss why that is, is highly problematic. But I think also it's something to discuss, which is that there are different forms of violence. Uh, Pierre Bourdieu, building on what John Goltung uh, described as, as cultural violence, um, and what Paul Farmer uh, talks about as structural violence, Bourdieu added another level, which is what he calls symbolic violence, uh, the way that symbolic power is used uh, to legitimize the violence against others. And we can think about, say, the legitimization of, say, the violence against others, say, in the context of Miramar at present, mm -hmm. right, that uh, the... And, and astonishingly, that Aung San Suu Kyi has not used the symbolic power to prevent this from continuing, but that the Burmese government says that the Rohingya are not Burmese, are not Miramarian, and moreover, right, they are illegal refugees, and therefore they're not worthy of the protection of the state. The symbolic claim of that makes it possible right, to burn villages. And so part of the reason why we need to be attentive to what Anand described as say, horizontal inequality is the way that structural violence perpetrated on a regular basis against a particular group might be met with physical violence. Now, all too often in discussions of violence, only physical violence is paid attention to. So we might think, again, using the example of apartheid South Africa, we might think of, say, the ANC planting a bomb, uh, uh, say, on the Durban beach, as they, as they did, uh, as being violent, yeah. but not necessarily seeing, although I, I don't think anyone would defend, but not necessarily seeing the very creation of the township system or the Bantu homelands as its own kind of violence. Mm -hmm. that, that kind of structural violence, which exposes certain groups of people to deprivation, to particular deprivations, exposes them to all kinds of health harm. So Paul Farmer described uh, structural violence in a way as saying, if the government say, systematically denies vaccinations to the children of a particular social group, whether ethnic or class, mm -hmm. 
right? And those children then die from the lack of that vaccination. It's the same as if the government had come out and beaten those children to death. Now, obviously, it's not the same, right? It has all kinds of different levels to it. But if we see structural violence as a form of violence, then suddenly we can understand that the systematic debasement of particular social groups may have profound repercussions. And so when we look at ethnic conflict, it's not enough to see the groups for themselves. Let's see, Christians are fighting uh, uh, Muslims in East Timor. Uh, that, uh, as we discussed earlier, two ethnic groups, two tribal networks are fighting in Kenya. No, actually, we might look at the way that one network systematically debases and systematically oppresses another group. And if that systemization, and it doesn't have to be with police batons or bullets, but it might be lack of access to healthcare, it might be lack of access to education, it might be lack of access to all kinds of things. If we go back thinking in this Wallerstinian and Balabarian way, right, that that systematic debasement itself may become the distinction between an ethnic group and another ethnic group. That is what, what one group may suddenly be seen as an other, and that group, which is really only distinguished by its deprivation, comes to see itself as something, takes a name, and suddenly we see that as ethnic. And that, that ethnic group then is at odds with another group. So there's a whole way, say, perhaps we can see the Zapatista movement uh, as an ethnic conflict between, say, indigenous people in Chiapas, Mayans in Chiapas, and, say, the Mexican political establishment. In this case, what might be then the ancestors of Peninsulari, say, you know, Iberian Peninsula, Spaniards against these Mayan people. Does that actually get at what's motivating the conflict? And I think this is what uh, I tried to explore in the piece and what Conan, uh, Kofi Annan was describing in his comment, which is it's not enough to say that ethnic conflict is, is this conflict between two named groups. What's the motivation for it? And the motivation is systematic debasement and systematic oppression expressed as horizontal inequalities. Well, suddenly we see a way forward here, right? Undoing those systematic forms of inequality may be a way of reconciling the two groups and actually ending the conflict. And you talk about the case of Rwanda in this as well. How does this apply in Rwanda? Because that is a, a case that people would see as, well, yeah, it's purely defined by ethnicities here. It's purely an ethnic conflict here. What way do you see this, through this lens? Right. So uh, a lot of people have, have, have written on, on this, some who know this much, much better than I do. But um, you know, Wallerstein and Balibar, again, uh, actually visit this subject curiously five years before the outbreak of the, the genocide. Right? Yeah. And utilizing this as an example of this kind of fluidity about class and ethnicity or fluidity of class and, and identity. So prior to the Belgian colonization of Rwanda, mm -hmm. Hutu and Tutsi were largely actually seen as, uh, for our purposes, for this conversation, economic categories mm -hmm. that one is largely associated with pastoralism. Hutus are largely seen as, as, the, as the farmers, and Tutsi are largely seen as cattle herders um, and, and more in animal husbandry. And you can move back and forth, right? That the, the grouping was about 
what you did, not who you are. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, the distinction was a distinction largely about your role in agricultural society. And these names then took on a role where often people wouldn't move. I mean, you could move, and largely it would happen through marriage, but for the most part, one would do what one's parents did. A daughter would do what a mother had done, and a son had, would do what a father had done. And mm -hmm. we can think then about how that say, repetition, that familial repetition of economic task, suddenly begins to look like not a class distinction, but a distinction between these two groupings. Mm -hmm. When the Belgians arrive, they actually see these two as distinct. Now, part of this has to do with the politics of the 19th century and the construction of race on, onto itself. Yeah. And you know, in, in some regard, race science is, uh, is, is discovered in Scotland, uh, to, to my great embarrassment. Right? <laughs> you know, so this, this whole idea of creating social hierarchies that are based on quote-unquote biological truths that then justify these hierarchies and then therefore justify certain groups oppressing other groups is largely you know, an apology to figure out why is it that white people get to dominate people of color. But that extension of certain races being superior to other races then gets applied by the Belgian colonists in Rwanda to suggest that the quote-unquote taller, lighter-skinned Tutsis should be dominant over the shorter, darker Hutus. Now, in the same claim that the great Aryan nation of Germany is all about tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people, forgets, of course, the fact that Hitler has brown eyes and black yeah. hair, right? And almost none of the leadership of the Nazi party, right, actually fit the Aryan mm. description. Right? Likewise, the Hutu-Tutsi distinction of tall and short and different sized noses and things like that, it's a fantasy, you know, it becomes a fiction. But in this case, it becomes the basis for systematic debasement. So under Belgian colonial rule, the Tutsis are able to dominate the Hutus. When the Belgians leave, it gets flipped. It becomes reversed. And so the Hutus then dominate the Tutsi. And suddenly we see such a level of violent ferocity uh, that there is a, an army made in exile, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, that's largely made up of quote-unquote Tutsis, and people who would identify as Tutsis, uh, who then come back and take the government. Now, what's interesting in this story is what's the mechanism that makes this ethnic conflict possible? It's the law. So the Belgians make these ethnic categories legal categories. You're issued identity cards. The, when the colonial legacy is overturned, the Hutu government does the same thing. They issue identity cards, and it's your the identity on your card that becomes the basis of whether you get access to a job or not access to a job. And if we think about then how what's printed on your identity card becomes whether you get to be a privileged member of society or not becomes a way you experience that kind of inequality. And it's horizontal because everyone in the group experiences the parallel horizontal discrimination. And in this case, right, we can see this struggle then between Hutus and Tutsis as about something related to access, related to healthcare, mm -hmm. related to dignity, not that Hutus and Tutsis always have hated each mm -hmm. other. There's, a, there's something economic at stake here. Um, and I think when we look at ethnic conflicts, it, it's important to see who's fighting, but I think it's also important for us to 
try to peel back those layers, to peel back the onion, and just try to see what's, what's happening in those groupings. How are those groupings made? And what's at stake in being in one group or another? And this is, this is something that we should be doing in, in all conflicts. And we sometimes make it more complicated for ourselves when we add the label of terrorism where we say this is no longer okay we were talking there about how these ethnic conflicts could be created these groups could be created but then in a especially in a post 9-11 society there's this knee-jerk reaction to pin the word terrorism on on pretty much any conflict that, that we see and finding out where is the terrorism how does that change things further again well and we can think what's one of the first things that uh momar Gaddafi uh said was you know his regime is being beset by terrorists uh, the bashar al-assad said the same thing that his regime is fighting against terrorists because these people you know are, are terrorists to see how that gets politically loaded but beyond beyond that immediate is you know one can think about something perhaps in the context of of uh basque terrorism yeah so there is and there had been systematic say, debasement of, of the Basque. Uh, there had been an attempt under, under Franco to, to actually eradicate Basque identity, to eradicate Basque language in the same way in particular that, that perhaps more ferociously, uh, Franco tried to destroy Catalan identity and the Catalan language. And out of that say, struggle, uh, Etta, the... the Basque homeland fighters uh, emerged. Now, in the 1960s, they were actually seen as, in some sense, not just fighting for the Basque. They were seen as the only armed militant group fighting Francoism, mm -hmm. right? in that sense, fighting fascism. So a lot of people actually saw that as, I won't necessarily say good, but I mean, there was a lot of, say, support for that. Well, what happens when Franco would say, well, this ETA proves that all Basques are terrorists, mm -hmm. right? that suddenly the application of the moniker for the small group of people who are involved in violent activity, violent struggle, violent political activity, uh, become the way to see all like people. And moreover, when it gets extended, so... You know, Obviously, the people who are going to be listening to this podcast, this is, this is quite an obvious statement, but I think it's a statement worth, worth saying. Mm. You know, we know that people in Al-Qaeda don't represent the Ummah, mm. right? They do not represent most Muslims. It's problematic, however, though, when political operatives in trying to fight Al-Qaeda or trying to fight Islamic State make simply practicing Islam, the basis of being suspicious of someone. And that becomes the extension. And so we might then see the way that the Francoist regime to retaliate against Etta makes life difficult for every Basque person. Because in that sense, it makes those few who are actually in the ranks of Etta responsible, responsible, that's an inverted mm. commas, responsible for the discomfort and the pain and the misery that they're co-nationals are experiencing at the hands of the Franco government. Now, of course, it's the Franco government that's responsible for the violence that it commits. But by extension, they, the Franco government, make all Basque people responsible for the violence 
that Edda commits. I think this is where it becomes quite dangerous. If we m mistake all people, all Tamil people for the actions of the LTTE, if we mistake all Achians for the free Achian movement, uh, that's a problem. But that isn't to say, however, that those groups don't necessarily represent a legitimate political movement inside those communities. Mm -hmm. It may be a minority, it may be small. It may actually be non-existent. But we can't say categorically, there is no relationship and we shouldn't likewise categorically say they represent everyone. Right. I think these are two equally dangerous poles. And maybe going back in the psychoanalytic sense, the all good and all bad, the complete minority and they speak for everyone, these two diametrically opposed poles, going back to what you, you've said numerous times, it's too simple. Yeah. It's much more complex, and we need to to try to reveal that complexity. Yeah, and I, you use the in the in the paper as well. You use the example of the PKK representing all all Kurds as well, and how uh, the Turkish government manipulated and used that to their own advantage to help with their own political agenda as well. And we can see. We, we, I'm sure there are people just thinking of numerous other examples here, and it's a. Uh, it's something that that we really need to be conscious of when we're when we're looking here. And and just to add to that, mm. you know, especially when it's the moniker of terrorist. So if we think about that southeast corner of Turkey, yeah. uh, right now in the the fight in the northeast corner of Syria, we have Kurdish People's Protection Units that are now allied to, say, at least the U.S. effort. Mm -hmm. And those Kurds are heroes, but they are under assault from the Turkish government, Turkish airstrikes, because they are actually seen as being adjunct to the PKK. And of course, all those groups are actually in connection with many of the Kurds that are in northwest Iraq, where there are lots of arms, armaments, and money coming from the U.S. government to that Kurdish area that then gets filtered into northeastern Syria, into southeastern Turkey. All of those people see themselves as Kurds. But in Turkey, they're terrorists. Mm -hmm. In Syria, they're freedom fighters. And in Iraq, they're the legitimate government, although maybe they'll no longer be legitimate if they have an independence vote. Yeah, yeah. It could have all changed by the time this podcast goes <laughs> exactly. out. Exactly. So how do we get from this kind of research to researching the 2011 riots? You you move uh, in in your piece the emergence of the lumpen uh, consumerist. You you've moved away from what you what this research ostensibly was about, and you're you're focusing on something quite different on the face of it. What yeah. what drew you to? Well, to so that piece. I mean, maybe it really is a, a, a one off, but but uh, well, probably not actually, because I, I have a new project that's looking at different forms of violence the project's called disposable bodies and it's looking at how certain bodies can be killed and other bodies can't under the terms of, of global capitalism or finance mm -hmm. capitalism and in some sense uh what we were just talking about mm -hmm. is actually what inspired that piece about the riots which is immediately after the riots the cameron government and cameron himself came out and said that was all about criminality Right? That all the people that were participating in the riots, they're gang members or they're criminals. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, by definition, because they were looting, then they are criminals. Right? But to me, there was something very disturbing about the application of the moniker criminal 
to all of those young people. In the same way we were just talking about the application of the moniker terrorist yeah. to say everyone who's Basque or everyone who's Achean. What was happening in those riots? Moreover, the simple idea that uh, people just wanted stuff um, also seemed to be a bit facile to me. So it was a, an exploration about, in, in many ways, it was an exploration about horizontal inequality uh, here in Britain. You know, what does it mean to young people who are systematically excluded because of anti-social behavior orders? Uh, they can't be on the street, but there are no youth centers. Uh, they can't congregate in front of uh, stores. They get watched by the store detectives when they go into those stores, uh, but there are no resources for after-school activities. What happens to those kids, to those young people, who are constantly, in a sense, surveilled by the police, who are constantly seen as potentially gang members or criminals, and yet they have no resources? And who are those young people? They're not the young people of, of the well-to-do. And so what does it mean when one group of young people get surveilled on a constant basis or are under the watchful eye of the police on a constant basis? And when we saw the riots happening uh, in that summer, uh, part of what I was seeing was young people in a way, doing what they were told to do, which is to be consumers. But these are the same young people that are followed when they go through Debenhams, right? They, or they don't have the money to, to have the latest things, the latest iPhone, but they're told by a Levi's jean ad, right, that they are supposed to go do this, right? That you are nothing if you're not wearing diesel jeans. You're not a proper person if you don't have these objects. It's very interesting. They didn't take, the rioters didn't take from everywhere. They went to very specific places. They went to direct sports. They went to certain technology shops. They went to car phone warehouse. They were taking the things that the society told them that they need, but they were having no access to. And perhaps it's, it's a, you know, there may be plenty of people listening right now. We think, well, that, that's a stretch to go from that to, to uh, uh, you know, ethnic conflict. But I, I think a lot of the discussion about what was going on in the riots uh, treated young people in the same way that a lot of the discourse about political violence alienates and excludes the possibility that there may be something legitimate to be said by, by the group that actually is, is seen as the enemy. It's a, it's a lot about um, a group being told what to, what to do, to being told what to think, but then when they respond, they're not being listened to as well. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah, very much so, very yeah. much so. And this, this, um, this whole research uh, surrounding whether you're you're talking about it. and i i asked that question about where does the connection come uh knowing from reading the piece that it's actually very similar what we saw there in your analysis to what we saw in the ethnic conflicts but do you feel that the piece understanding co collective violence the communicative and performative qualities of violence and acts of belonging 
would be the piece for you that really sums up all your arguments, brings all of these pieces that we've been talking about, brings them all together. Absolutely. And I, I think if one were to read that piece, then as, as you just suggested, John, you can see the link between a discussion of ethnic conflict and let's say a discussion of the, the young people that, that were involved in the, in the riots. Part of that is trying to understand something we had spoken about earlier, you know, what motivates people to commit violence. And in this, to understand that there are plenty of milieus where violence is it's valorized. I mean, we talk about often we, the larger society, right? We talk about violence as a scourge, or we talk about, I think in the very beginning of the piece, I actually suggest, you know, no violence is senseless. All violence has a sense to it. Um, it's done for a purpose. Now, it may not be done for a purpose that the larger segment of society likes, but it's done for a purpose. And even when someone, say, is killed by a stray bullet, uh, and we call that senseless, the bullet went stray from a purpose, <laughs> right? from a purposeful shot, if it was a bullet from a gun. So how do we understand why people might be motivated to this? And in, in understanding collective violence, I, I really explore say, group membership and coming back to these questions of identity and things like that. Group membership through the lens of what Pierre Bourdieu and this French sociologist that I mentioned earlier discusses as social capital. That we can think about being in groups uh, as a way of obtaining status, right? We, we, mm. we all want to be recognized, right? We all want to, to have status, to, to uh, have social standing, to be seen as important. And Daniel Druckmann suggests that we all get our self-worth from the groups in which we participate. But what happens, going back to these young people we were talking about in the Lumpen Consumerate uh, piece, and that to that, I mean, these young people, right, we, the Marxian term is a Lumpen proletariat, mm. right, these people that can't really effectively participate in the proletariat for all kinds of reasons. These, I was suggesting these young people can't participate in consumption in a proper way, and therefore they're seen as defective. If we think about all kinds of defective people, people that are denied access to the normal, quote unquote, normal routes of social status, whether through education or through work or through, say, economic capital, you have a lot of money, you have status. Right? So what happens to poor people, to people who have no access to good education, to people who live on housing estates? Right? Where do you get your social status? And Pierre Bourdieu suggests people who lack access to the mainstream, to the hegemonic forms of status, they'll find their own routes, right? They, they may be counter-hegemonic. They may be counter-cultural uh, modes of, of status derision. Now, his original research was about uh, say, young colonial French people and Arab school children in Algeria in the same classroom. Mm -hmm. And why did some speak better French than the other? Why did the Arab students who got the same education, why did they speak poor French? And it wasn't because they couldn't learn French. And it wasn't because uh, they had learning disabilities or learning troubles. It was because by social status, to speak better French was to somehow suggest that you wanted to be in the, f in the more traditional colonial avenues of status. And because they were Arab, they often were not allowed into those avenues. So one way to mark that you're not trying to be in that social status system is to, de to deny it, to invert it, to turn it over. And so there is a, uh, a number of reasons why people 
speak in certain dialects to mark that they're not trying, trying to be in the establishment. But we can think of all kinds of alternate groups in which collecting, collections of people who are otherwise denied access to social status create their own forms of social status. Mm -hmm. And we might think of the street gang as a, as a great example of that, right? Mm -hmm. That the gang gives status to people who otherwise wouldn't have status. Mm -hmm. And here we can see the role of violence in that status, that one of the ways of obtaining high levels of status in the street gang, in a militia, in a biker gang, in a whole series of violent milieus, one way of obtaining social status is to commit violence. But the interesting thing here is that often people aren't violent, right? Before they join the group, they become violent within that milieu because they understand it becomes the avenue to obtaining social status. And not for everyone. For some people, it's not necessary to be violent. Uh, because there are different roles in these groups. So some people might be the theorists, they might be the, the, the propagandists, they might be the finance person, they might be a technical creative person. So there might be different roles within the group that give status. But generally speaking, status is obtained in a violent milieu through the commitment of violence. And how do we go about replacing this status um, for those who do want to move away but are in need of maintaining some form of status. Yes, and, and here, again, going to street gangs, there, is, there are some very interesting examples. There has been uh, an interesting initiative in Glasgow, uh, Serve, which is based on um, the project called Cincinnati Ceasefire and Boston Ceasefire, largely Boston Ceasefire, um, founded by David Kennedy, uh, which is to understand that the street gang itself is this status group. And that if you're trying to stop the violence, put the focus on stopping the violence. Mm -hmm. Don't break up the group. So if you, and this happened in Chicago, say midnight basketball, right? You let the gangs participate as the gang, right? With all their social networks intact, but they can't commit violence. And this is actually, unfortunately, it was moving in a great direction in Glasgow, and then it got, it got scaled back for all kinds of political reasons we, we don't have to get into here. Mm -hmm. But um, part of it is the dislike right, for many in the police and, and the government to suggest that they're, quote unquote, accepting the group. But the principle here is if, you, if the goal is to ameliorate the conditions of violence, to reduce violence, then focus on the violence mm -hmm. and see that this group is doing something. So in the case of uh, Strathclyde Police, this was before the creation of the Police Scotland, the single unified police force, and that was part of the politics that undid this. But uh, they largely turned to the gang leaders and said, you're a real leader? You show us you're a real leader. You keep your soldiers in line. Stop the violence. You stop the violence. Yeah. But it was a way of actually the establishment kind of saying, okay, we do recognize you as a leader, and we're going to call you to account. Be, be a leader. Yeah. And that becomes an interesting way of stopping the violence. But it's understanding that these groups are doing something for people who see that they are being excluded from the regular avenues mm -hmm. of status. And that also has to be addressed. The way to undo the whole gang structure is to prevent the people from feeling like they're being excluded in the first place. It goes back to that, that theme that we were dealing with at the very beginning. It's about 
giving and taking responsibility rather than giving or taking blame as well. So it, it, it really, it's about empowering there. And it reminds me of, uh, you wouldn't have listened to it at the time of recording, but the, the episode prior to this was with Neil Ferguson and we were talking about loyalist uh, yeah. in groups in Belfast and specifically talking about the Red Hand Commando who are currently, who are former paramilitary group and currently trying to have their... Uh, designation as a terrorist group withdrawn because they want to be seen as legitimate community activists as well and it's it's the community's blocks against that and saying no these guys should never be seen as legitimate it's a really understandable point of view as well but you can see this taking place and the red ham commandos saying we have to maintain the name we have to maintain this status because we're worried about if we give up this this status and someone else can take it on for themselves that might be drawn into further paramilitarism further criminality as well so it it's showing the yeah it's showing the the power that this status can have and it's by focusing purely on the behavior we can make great steps forward absolutely and i think there are two interesting aspects i mean that's a a, a really powerful example of this um being intact, social networks being intact, command structures in the sense of hierarchies being intact, authority mm -hmm. being recognized as being a member within the group. You, you, if you're inside the group, you have to respect the command structure right? or the, the hierarchy structure, whatever we're going to call this. And that means that the people can be held to account. So it has a lot of potential for transforming uh the kinds of relationships or the kinds of expression of group membership. So suddenly, if that group says, look, we as a group no longer endorse violence, right? we as a group are going to work to stop being violent, but we're still a group. Um, that has tremendous potential because of all of the built-in respect that had gone into the group in the, in the first place. And there's an example of say, the, the evolution of the Latin queens, which is kind of, the, there's a street gang in the United States called the Latin Kings that have kind of gone global. And there's a woman's component to it. But what's interesting here, and, and to be sure, women are in street gangs and women are violent. Yeah. And they, you know, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. Mm. But it's not because they're women that they weren't violent or they shouldn't be seen as equal street gang members. But what is important here is that they have evolved into being a kind of more of a community organization. But they have the street cred because they are the Latin queens. And it's important that they remain as such. And I would just say, maybe this is off topic, but the kind of the obverse is also demonstrative of what can happen. So just as you were describing, say, the, the concerns of Red Hand Command, uh, in Chicago, the police systematically went out and took out most of the major leadership uh, of the street gangs. Um, Chicago has now been experiencing a level of violence that is simply unprecedented. I mean, it, it, what, what's obscene in Chicago is in the past uh, four years, as many people have died in Chicago as have died in the Troubles. Um, I mean, it is just an incredible level of violence. And if it wasn't, I think, basically people uh, who are at the margins of society committing violence against other people at the margins of society, there would be a far more powerful intervention. But I bring it up because the violence is happening precisely because the top echelons of leadership were removed. And so what's happening is street-level fighting for respect among some of the youngest 
members. I mean, we're talking about teenagers, and some as young as 12, shooting each other because they want to have respect and authority on their block. And part of the problem is there's no other hierarchy of, of authority there. There's no other alternate, say, status grouping that can actually say, look, don't do that. Mm -hmm. You're still a member of the group, and we yeah. we expect you to be violent. But this is un, you know this is unproductive, or you know this is damaging. There is no containment there right now, and I would suggest that this is demonstrative of what happens when the police just go in and say, "Oh, these people are violent. We're going to take away the top echelons of the leadership." It actually made the violence, at least in Chicago, it made the violence much worse. Whereas saying we see you as a leader, you stop the violence, um, at least for a short period in Glasgow, demonstrated that that was possible. And I would think that the transformation of the Red Hand Commando might actually, you know, could actually do something very similar. Uh, Lee Smithy uh, talks about conflict transformation, looking largely at loyalist groups. How can the markers of loyalist paramilitaries' violence be transformed into the marker of membership in you know, these loyalist communities that still have very particular political identities. It's not asking the people to erase their political identity. Mm. It's asking them not to be violent. That's a very different position. Yeah. It's, it, when you were given that answer about uh, the Chicago street gangs there, or the, the violence in Chicago, I should say, it, it just shows that we have so much to learn from non-political violence as we do from former uh, from former political violence as well and you can see great strides being made in relation to crossing those uh, escaping from our traditional silos and going in and finding out from different topics um such as gang violence um we heard last week about religious conversion motifs as a way of of uh, understanding radicalization as well um and one of the things that you have brought to, to us today is by delving into uh, our understanding from psychoanalysis, what we can draw as well. So looking forward rather than back now, what's the, where do you see the influence of psychoanalysis uh, going in relation to understanding political violence and understanding terrorism as a form of political violence as well. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess, uh, well, one way of answering that is, you know, I'm really pleased with the, the title that the university gave me when I, when I took mm. this job, um, because I was charged with looking at collective violence. Yeah. And it's that emphasis that, although mostly I look at political violence, and this is all done through the lens of political analysis, it is about seeing how violence or the role that violence plays in group identity and in group membership. And here, it becomes easy for me then to cross between a street gang and say an ethnic paramilitary in an ethnic conflict because the, the thing that connects them both is that they are about the group, they're mm -hmm. about the collective. Further, I would say though, that it's about something very fundamental that motivates the actors in both the street gang and say in the ethnic uh, paramilitary militia, which is our own sense of belonging, our own sense of self-worth. And here it is, I think, through this lens of psychology and particularly through the lens of psychoanalysis that we can explore what are the mechanisms from whence do we derive our sense of self-worth? 
what are the institutional uh, inhibitions to the promotion of a strong sense of well-being, of personal well-being, a strong sense of belonging and inclusion. Uh, what are those psychological impediments? Some of those are rooted in the kinds of social deprivation that we were talking about in mm -hmm. terms of horizontal inequalities. But we can talk about the way that that is physiologically experienced, our hunger, our exposure to toxic chemicals if we have to live near the toxic waste dump, those kinds of things. But most of our experience of that is not the biological and the physical. Most of it is the emotional. It's our experience that we understand that we are being deprived or our empathetic capacity of understanding that someone else is being deprived. How can we relate to one another becomes, in many regards, the very foundation of psychoanalysis. How do we both uh, critique and explore our own sense of our self-identity, our own psyche, and more importantly, this is the evolution of psychoanalysis, far from Freud and into more contemporary theorists like Vomik Volkan. Uh, how do we do this relationally? How do we experience not only ourselves, but to use Julia Kristeva's term, how do we experience the other? How do we experience the stranger? And to me, it's that internal, external movement, the way that Melanie Klein, the founder of the Object Relations um, School of Psychoanalysis, suggested that the interior and the exterior are extremely important. We have our own thoughts about ourselves because we experience the world. But more importantly, we project our experience out onto the world. And that movement back and forth, it's not as Descartes suggested, inside the mind and outside see, to the body. It's the interaction between, as Vomik Volkan called his own center, the interaction between mind and human, between mind and the flesh. Or we might think of the individual and the group and the social and the physical worlds. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey, I think that's a great way to finish off today's podcast. Thank you so much uh, for coming and spending so much time with us today. Oh. I, it's been it's been brilliant. I really, really have enjoyed it. Um, I think we could have a whole podcast series just of you. Thank you, John. It's been really my pleasure. And yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation Good. as well. I'm glad. And I'd like to thank Jamie Murray as well for uh, editing today's podcast. Uh, as always, if you want to engage with any of the research which was talked about today, please go to our website, ual.ac.uk slash TERC, and there are links there to all the piece of research which Jeffrey was talking about today. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing about more about the psychology of collective violence, more specifically the psychology of terrorism, be sure to join us and listen in next week when I'll be talking to Dr. John Horgan of Georgia State University, my former PhD supervisor and a former colleague of Jeffrey's as well in St. Andrews. Again, it will be, I hope it will be really worth uh, the listen and I'm sure it will be. So thank you very much and goodbye.